Uh, okay, there I am. Let's try that again. Good morning. Oh, it's great to be together this morning, not just with you in person, but I just want to say, uh, you know, welcome to all of those who are joining us online and just continuing to be faithful, uh, joining in with us. We love you. We miss you. We can't wait to be together again with you in person, and we're praying together, and yeah, we are one church, and we're so grateful that God allows us the medium of being able to stream our services so that we can be together. You know, we've all seen them before. Uh, usually sometime in the spring, coming up out of little sidewalk cracks or, you know, the, the breaks in the asphalt, these little flowers, they just manage to push their way through their rock-hard confines. I get them uh, in the driveway just outside my garage. And despite all the salt that I put down there in the winter, the scorching heat in the summer, and all the foot and tire traffic that tread upon that area all year round, I still manage to get these beautiful little yellow and purple flowers that spring up there. And yet, the peace lily plant in my office that I have cared and nurtured for the last five years barely hangs on for life and has never once bloomed for me, and I hate it, and honestly, I think it hates me. <laughs> but I'm amazed by those little sidewalk flowers. Not just because their beauty and their delicate form just contrast the gray, hard concrete, but because they seem to grow undeterred by all the difficulty and hardship they face. In fact, it seems that they flourish because of it. And that's what we see in this passage that we're looking at this morning about the gospel. That it isn't hindered by difficulties that we face either. In fact, God grows the gospel in adversity. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me please to Philippians 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 18 this morning. Let me pray as you're turning there. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your great love for us. I just pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everybody else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. So you may recall from a couple of weeks ago when I introduced this letter to the Philippians to us, I said that Paul is writing from a prison cell. Most likely it's in Rome. Now the Christians at Philippi whom he's writing to, they are well aware of his imprisonment. It's why they sent their friend Epaphroditus, one of their congregants, to Paul, along with a financial gift to minister to Paul and take care of his needs. 
But though they are well aware of his imprisonment, they can only speculate at how Paul's doing. You know, there were no phones or email back then, and it would have taken weeks for a letter to get from one city to another. So you can imagine the concern the Philippian church has for their beloved pastor Paul sitting in prison and not knowing what is happening to him. Perhaps they're worried that he's taken ill from a lack of food. Or maybe they're concerned that prison or the further punishment that may await him has caused the apostle to become fearful. Or maybe depressed because Paul is unable to do the work that he loves so much that God has called him to. And so it's to inform them of his condition and relieve them of their worry that Paul writes the Philippians saying, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Served to advance the gospel? Like, that's great, Paul, but we want to know about you. How are you doing? But you see, for Paul, his primary concern in life, it is the gospel. And it's not that uh, concern for his welfare, whether he'll have food or, or the state of his release from prison. It's not that these things don't matter to him. It's just that they don't matter most to him. The main concern for Paul is advancing the gospel, and it's the advancement of the gospel. It is so connected to Paul's own welfare. It's why he goes right there when he just starts to talk about how he's doing. Theologian Karl Barth, he says, Paul would just not be an apostle if he could speak objectively about his own situation in abstraction from the course of the gospel. To the question, how is it with him? The apostle must react with information as to how it is with the gospel. This really challenges me to evaluate what my own well-being is predicated on. It's so easy for my contentment to be conditioned, you know, to be contingent on my current circumstances, right? Whether or not things are going well at home or at work, my health, health of my loved ones, even my financial statement, right? And don't get me wrong, all of these things, they are important. But if our well-being is entirely subject to just our circumstances, then we're going to find it difficult when our expectations aren't met or when these things fail us. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, the key to well-being regardless of our circumstances. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. There it is. It's all about the one who gives him strength. Paul's joy is determined by his life in Christ. In God, whose promises are unchanging, whose mercy never fails, and whose presence and love will never leave or forsake him. And if our lives, like Paul's, are so wrapped up in Jesus, not only can our joy never be threatened because they are secure with Christ in heaven, but we will also begin to see the hardship that we endure differently. Because God grows the gospel in adversity. 
Paul details just how God has used his imprisonment to advance the gospel. First, in verse 13, he says that it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. So the palace guard or the praetorium, this was like the elite force who guarded the emperor. So think secret service. And they also guarded certain prisoners. And we know that these guards, they worked in four-hour shifts where they would be relieved after four hours. And then they were manacled or chained to their prisoners, including um, those who were under house arrest like Paul. Now, being in such close proximity with Paul, his guards were his captive audience, literally. There was nowhere that they could go. And so Paul was able to share with these guards why he was imprisoned, that this wasn't for a crime that he committed. This wasn't because of anything political, but that it had everything to do with his Christian faith. But more than just being imprisoned for a religious matter, Paul says that it's clear that he's in chains for Christ. He's in chains for Christ, not just because of Christ, but for him. And there's a difference here. If Paul were in chains because of Christ, we could then see his imprisonment as just a consequence of his faith. But by saying that he's in prison for Christ, Paul is also saying that Jesus has him in prison for a specific purpose. That his imprisonment somehow serves to build God's kingdom. Verse 16 confirms this when Paul says, I am put here for defense of the gospel. That word put literally is the word stationed. I've been stationed here. My friend Scott Anderson, he explains, just like the guards were stationed by Caesar to watch Paul, Paul has been stationed in the prison to keep watch over his guards. They may think Caesar is having Paul guarded. Paul is letting them know Jesus is having them guarded. And Paul certainly would have tried to evangelize the, Paul, the palace guards who watched over him. Theologian Lynn Kohek, she says, You can just imagine a Roman soldier's astonishment when he hears Paul declare that his physical chains are not indicative of Caesar's hold on his life. Instead, those chains establish Christ's victory in spreading the gospel to all, including them. So the first way that God has used his imprisonment to advance the gospel is through these palace guards. The second Paul explains in verse 14, saying, Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now this is a phenomenon that I don't think the Philippians or any of us could have anticipated. We would expect persecution to cause the believers to become more cautious. Instead, Paul's imprisonment has resulted in the Roman believers being more confident, more daring, having less fear. How do we explain this? It seems to me that they were likely inspired by Paul's example, not only to be as courageous as him, but also by his attitude and understanding of his imprisonment. Some of the believers, they would have visited Paul in prison. They would have heard him share the gospel with his prison guards and how Jesus stationed him there for a purpose. They would have seen the peace that Paul had despite being in chains. And there is no doubt that they 
would have taken this information back to their community and it would have galvanized them as a community. It reminds me of a time where I went to the hospital to visit an older congregant who was there for a very serious illness. And I expected going in to see someone who was really down, right? Being captive to his bed, uncertain about his future, right? And I also expected that I would be the one who would go in there and to bring a word of encouragement. Instead, what I found was that this gentleman had used this opportunity to share the gospel with every nurse and doctor he encountered. Not only that, he took it upon himself to start going into other patients' rooms and asking them what they were in for, telling them, oh, by the way, my pastor is coming to pray for me, and if you would like, he'll pray for you too. <laughs> upon my arrival, this is exactly what he did. He took me from room to room, to pray with all these other patients that he had gotten to know. Now, get, after getting over my initial shock of this experience, I have to say, I was inspired by his example. Not only his boldness to share his faith, but how he viewed his circumstances. Not as just a difficulty, but also as a God-given opportunity. Not just difficulty, but also opportunity. And that's what I think has happened to these Roman believers here, right? Their courage grew and their fear shrank, not because the threat of trouble had been removed, but because they were inspired at how God continues to build his kingdom through Paul, not in spite of his circumstances, but because of it. God grows the gospel in adversity. This shows us that there is meaning and purpose to our suffering. That it's not just random and futile. It should encourage us that when we have our plans badly thwarted or life becomes difficult. As N.T. Wright says, we need to learn from Paul the art of seeing God's purposes working out through problems and difficulties. I'll say that again. We need to learn the art of seeing God's purposes working out through our problems and difficulties. In the final section of this passage, Paul shares how not everyone who is preaching the gospel is doing so with pure motives and love for Christ. He says that some are doing it out of envy and rivalry. And we don't know who these jealous preachers are. Nor do we know what they are actually envious of. Is it Paul's chains? Is it his confidence in the face of martyrdom? Doubtful. Chances are it's Paul's influence they are jealous of, right? They, it seems that they are trying to take advantage of the situation while he's in prison, looking to gain influence over those who previously sought Paul for understanding about the gospel, hoping now they will begin to follow them. And their motivation, it's super disturbing, isn't it? Rivalry, jealousy, spite, right? It's spite. They're trying to stir up trouble for Paul while he's already languishing in prison and using the gospel to do it. But despite how terrible their motivation is, Paul's response is incredible. What does it matter, he says? The most important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true 
Christ is preached. Now, Paul is not saying that their motives don't matter. We should not assume that disingenuous preachers of the gospel are going to be praised by God. Certainly not. Paul makes it clear in his other letters that the intentions of those who teach and preach are important, that they are not a matter of indifference. But Paul's focus here, it remains on God's ability to grow the gospel in adversity and to make people with perverse motives serve his ends. Reminds me about the story of Joseph back in Genesis, right? His brothers fake his death. They sell him into slavery. And then a series of unfortunate events continue to plague his life. But at the end of the story, uh, Joseph has risen to the highest rank in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And he is able to use his position of power to save his family from starvation. But after their father dies... Joseph's brothers fear that he's now going to take his revenge on them for what they did in their youth. But Joseph responds in Genesis 50 with these famous words. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So despite their false motives, God can still use these perverse preachers' words for good, right? To make people with perverse motives serve his ends. Commentator Frank Thielman, he says, the insincere preaching of these rivals stands parallel to Paul's imprisonment. Both of these things are evil, but God is able to use both of them for his redemptive purposes. I think there's two lessons we can learn here from, from this part of this passage. First is from these rival preachers. And that's though they preach the gospel, they have failed to allow its life-changing power to transform them, to penetrate their own hearts and their own relationships with others. And this is so sad. You know, there's always going to be a certain level of disintegration between what a preacher says and how they live, right? Like, I'm on the journey too. There's going to be times where I stand up here and I'm going to say, hey, this is how the Bible is calling us to live. And I'm going to struggle to live up to it as well. But the goal of our spiritual formation is to lessen that gap, isn't it? Is to have greater integrity between what we profess and how we live. Between what we believe and how we behave. The second lesson that we can learn here comes from Paul. He's not worried about his reputation. He's not concerned about losing followers. Throughout this whole passage, Paul has continued to demonstrate a posture of smallness. Though he's in prison, he minimizes his own personal circumstances and he redirects attention towards the gospel's advancement. Like this is an amazing attitude. It reminds me of John the Baptist his disciples come up to him. They're all concerned, saying, you know, to John, like, nobody's coming to you to get baptized anymore. They're all going to this fellow Jesus to get baptized, right? And how does John respond to his disciples? He says, I must, he must become greater. I must become less. 
an amazing attitude. It's challenging for sure. A posture of smallness, great humility. But Paul says it's this posture, it's this attitude is one that actually gives him joy, right? Paul's well-being is founded in Christ. Remember his secret to being content in any and every situation. It's about the one who gives him strength. And it really shouldn't be a surprise to those of us who know the gospel well that God grows it in adversity. It's into this troubled world that Jesus was born. It's because of conflict between us and God that he came. And it's through enduring suffering and death that Jesus paid the price for our rebellion and our sin. So the gospel isn't a story without adversity. Rather, it's the good news that in and through the adversity that he faced on our behalf, that God made the way for us to be reconciled to him. It's also the promise that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and that there will be more, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That the old order of things, all of our adversity and all of our trouble, it will pass away. That one day this will happen. And if you haven't yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, I'd encourage you to do that. It is so worthwhile. It is so good. But he doesn't promise you a trouble-free existence in this life today. But he does promise that for one day and for all of eternity. And he promises that in the meantime, that he will use our difficulties in order to grow his gospel. And I want to share with you two ways in which I see that he does that. First, I've seen God use difficulty to grow the gospel in our world at large. Even during this pandemic, we don't know all the ways that God is using this difficult situation to enlarge his kingdom, but he has brought one way really home to me personally. Uh, not this past fall, but the one before, uh, I ended up meeting two twin boys, teenage boys, who are Syrian refugees who grew up in a Muslim home. Uh, and uh, they told me their story about how the pandemic had forced them to consider their own mortality. Locked up from school, not being able to like play soccer and stuff like that, they began thinking about their pandemic and their, their own mortality, and it caused them great fear. And somehow, uh, through a miraculous means, they ended up watching testimonies on this app called TikTok, and they gave their life to Christ through that. See, God can use anything. Um, and then they went online and was chatting to someone online about their faith, and the person said, well, you need a Christ an older Christian to help mentor you through the faith, and somehow they gave them my personal cell phone number, and they don't know who this person was, and I don't know who it was, and they made contact with me, and for the last year and a half, I've been able to walk with these two brothers, disciple them in their faith, and this last summer, I got to baptize them over at Barnett Marine Park. <sighs> their lives are a living testimony that God is up to way more through this pandemic than you or I could ever imagine. That he uses the adversity that we face to grow the gospel. 
And so he does it for the world at large. And second, I see God growing the gospel in adversity in how he grows it through us individually. And ironically, it's when I was writing this part of the sermon that the phone rang here at the church and I picked it up and had a really difficult conversation. And I was like, oh Lord, you're teaching me something right now for me. You're teaching this to me. I hate going through hard times, even just hard phone calls. But remember, they're not just difficulty. They're opportunity given to us by God. Paul says in Romans, we can rejoice even in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. There Paul goes again, right? Rejoicing even in suffering. So how about you? How's your joy? Are you able to be content in any and every situation? I got to say that I am one who is still learning the art of seeing God's purposes worked out through my problems and difficulties. I'm not there yet, but I am learning. And sometimes he makes it super obvious, maybe more obvious than I like. But even though we may not always be great at this, I think we can be encouraged. This is the whole reason Paul starts out this section, I want to tell you what's going on with me, right? He tells the Philippians about what's happened because he wants them to know so that they will be encouraged, so that they will also have the opportunity to grow in confidence in the Lord. Because it's God who grows the gospel in adversity. It's not us. God does it. It's through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us that we learn and grow. And it's only in Christ who gives us strength that we are able to do all of this. And so we can be encouraged. This passage, it encourages us today to bring our troubles before God and not only ask him for help and relief, and certainly we should but we should also ask him for perspective. That we might have eyes to see the kingdom opportunities that are in our circumstances, not only for us, but for the world around us. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, you are so good to us. You are an amazing God who is able to use all things for good. Thank you for how you used even the death of your son to transform our lives. And eventually, you're going to transform this entire world. And so, um, we want to follow in the footsteps of Christ. We want to bear our cross. We want to, um, you know, be faithful and trusting you that it's not in spite of difficulty, but it's that even through the difficulty that we endure, that you will bring your kingdom. We pray that you would transform our own hearts first and that we would be used by you to transform this world that you so loved. Help us to love it too. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>